You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi, folks, and welcome to episode 72 of the Let's Talk Apple podcast. This is the show for August 2019, and I'm your host, Bart Bouchotts. Joining me today, I have a panel who are small in number, but high in quality. So um, we're slightly British Isles centred for this show, but so be it. It's August, the most difficult month of the year to get a panel together. Uh, So... I am not going to be in any way picky. Anyway, with all that said, we have Nick Riley joining us again. Hi, Nick. Hi, Bart. Nice to be back. A pleasure to have you. And you just cheered me up no end in the pre-show by reminding me that if this is show number 72 and I do exactly 12 shows a year, which I do, then this must be the final show of year six of this podcast. Yeah, congratulations. Well done. Cheers. I'm stunned uh, in a good way that it's been six whole years. Wow. The, the other voice you heard there is Simon Parnell from the Essential Apple Podcast. Simon, thank you for joining us as well. Yep. Thank you. It's a hat trick now. That's three in three. a row. Do you get a prize? <laughs> That's like a whole quarter. Yes. Yes. If we, if we were doing earnings, that would be somehow relevant, but we're not. So it's OK. Um, anyway. Normally, when it comes to doing the show notes for the August show, I am scraping the bottom of the barrel. I am struggling to find things interesting enough to put into the show notes. I have had no such problem this month. My scroll bar is very small indeed. So before we even get to do new news, I need to do catch up on a few things we've talked about before. So uh, the Spotify complaint against Apple is still very slowly making its way through the various processes in Europe. Uh, But there seems to be some hints that maybe there's some behind the scenes talking going on because apparently Apple have come to an arrangement with Spotify where they will be adding Siri integration to their Spotify app. Now, these APIs will be available to anyone doing music, so... Maybe we shouldn't read too much into it, but it's still a positive thing for Spotify that they're going to get Siri integration, I think. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Uh, Any Spotify users on this rather small panel? No. No, yeah. I I just became an Apple Music user about three weeks ago, uh, but I I haven't been a Spotify user. I'm just curious how different the experience would be to, you know, how how third-party Spotify feels, but I guess it'll be less so if it's Siri-integrated. Now, Yes, I would think so. The second thing to follow up on is Apple Card, which is now available to people in the US, and given that I'm in Ireland and you two guys are in the UK, none of us have an Apple Card, I can safely assume. <laughs> Correct. Yes, they are now available. Um... There were a few little small minor hiccups during the rollout period where there's some weird email sent out and a few minor things. But on the whole, the launch was successful. Uh, People just kept on describing the process as delightful, easy, simple, quick, trivial, painless. I didn't hear anyone say it was cumbersome, awkward, painful, frustrating. So that seems 
positive for something from the financial services industry. Uh, yeah, I am from this certainly... side of the pond. From this side of the pond, unfortunately, it's sort of almost completely irrelevant. But <laughs> I know, and it's, it's it's really annoying at the moment. It's like being double driven home because right now. I am fighting my bank's IT system because they have decided that they don't want to deal with MasterCard anymore. So they are forcing all of their customers to move from a MasterCard to a Visa. But I want to move to a different Visa to the one that they're going to default me to. And I have to apply online. And they told me on the phone, oh, yeah, our system will reject you because you already have a credit card with us. But we'll then put through a manual appeal for you. Four weeks. I have been battling with these muppets. Still no credit card. So I now have two weeks left until the bloody MasterCard expires. And then I have that problem of having to go around the entire internet and change every bloody thing. And then the chances are then after that, they'll finally fix my visa and then I have to do it all again. So I want an Apple card, but I can't have one. Is what it boils down to. (laughs) Yet. Um, Let me see. The closest to a scandal... um, it's a new product, so there's a few rough edges. There is no standalone web interface. You you need to access it via the wallet app, but not only on your iPhone. You can also access it from another iOS device, but not from a Mac at the moment. I believe at WWDC there was talk about the wallet app being accessible on the Mac, if memory serves. So this might get easier, but there definitely is no web interface and right now, there is no way to integrate with stuff like Mint, which is a, a popular service people use for budgeting and stuff. Uh, but it appears that is on the way because someone emailed Tim Cook about it. And his, he didn't get a reply from Tim. He got a reply from, I think it was um, Eddie Q. But the implication was that it's it's on the horizon. And the wording of Apple support document says at the moment, as opposed to it doesn't. So right. it's probably coming. Um, and then the other thing that that come that's sort of vaguely scandalish, if you, you know, if you can search hard to find one, um, the contract contains arbitration. So unless you proactively opt out of arbitration, then arbitration is where things go, which means you're not allowed to have a class action lawsuit and a few other things like that. I don't have a particularly strong opinion on that, but it's a thing. And if you do have a strong opinion and you have an Apple card, you have 14 days, I think it is, to jump through a small amount of hoops and get yourself opted out of arbitration. And probably the thing that got the most media attention was the fact that um, Apple released a support document on how you care for your card, how you clean it and how you keep it looking all shiny. And in the document, they mention that it may discolor if it comes into contact with leather or suede, at which point half the internet went, you do know what wallets are usually made of? <laughs> Leathergate. Yes. Now, I have no idea whether this is one of those, it might discolor slightly or it will become a horrible mess or whatever. And even then, I'm not entirely sure I care because to me, the whole point of of, of this card would be that it is Apple Pay natively and the physical card is to me irrelevant. It's only there for legacy purposes. And hopefully a few years from now, there'll be no legacy rubbish left in the world and Mm. I would never need it. But I think some people, I've heard a few people who, don't want to use Apple Pay and they were complaining that the physical card doesn't do touch to pay. And I'm thinking, you people have completely missed the point. You just want a titanium credit card and you can get those from other companies. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, this is a total aside, but talking about uh, people doing other metal cards, I can't remember which one it was, and this is a, uh, I won't go long on it, but apparently uh, one of the other uh, card companies that supply a metal card uh, had complaints that it was bending, so they've made it thicker. Unfortunately, apparently, it's now too thick to go into some ATM machine. I was going to say, the thickness of those cards is it's, it's standard. You don't get to make it up as you go along. <laughs> exactly. So they made it thicker, and now people are complaining it won't go in various card machines. Oh, dear God. They had tap to pay. That is the answer. Just get, To be honest, no more physical cards is the answer. It's a relic of old times. Oh. <laughs> The other follow-up I unfortunately want to do is I just want to... Now, I don't want to dwell on this because we didn't even dwell on it in last month's show because it makes me cranky. But anyway, we should mention that the US-China trade war rumbles on. Uh, Probably the biggest thing is that unless something changes really bloody soon, then there will be tariffs on Apple Watch, AirPods and HomePod. It may even be today, actually. We're recording this on September 1st. I believe it was today. I believe it was today. Yeah, so I don't. I haven't heard anything to say that it hasn't happened. I don't know if the tweeter in chief has tweeted a change of mind, uh, but it would. So I think as we record this, there is now a tariff on Apple Watches, AirPods, and HomePods. But that's for import into America, and I know that when I get stuff from Apple, it's shipped direct from China. So I think we're okay being purely selfish. And even if we're not okay, I believe. That the 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 belief is that Apple won't raise the price for consumers, so maybe it'll all be okay. But anyway, the tariffs are probably in effect as we record this. But um, President Trump delayed the tariffs on iPhones until December. Definitely nothing to do with Christmas spending whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, Uncle Tim phoned him directly, apparently, mm. to uh, ask him. Yes. Yeah, that's another no, thing I, that caught my eye is that um, Trump actually said, yeah, Apple, you know, Tim Cook, uh, well, everyone else spends, wastes money on expensive lobbyists. Tim just phones me. <laughs> well, good on you, Tim. Um, and uh, he seems to have really wormed his way into the president's heart because uh, Trump has called Apple a great American company. He's thinking about excluding Apple from tariffs. He said that Tim Cook made a good case against tariffs. So, you know, there seems to be an interesting relationship going on there. Um, the, the, the delay until December really gets me because in Trump land, tariffs cost the Chinese money. They don't cost Americans money. Therefore, if this were true, which it isn't, but if it were true, then there will be no need to delay iPhone tariffs until December because it wouldn't be American consumers paying for the tariffs. But of course, it is American consumers paying for the tariffs because that's how tariffs bloody well work here on planet Earth. (laughs) And so he's delaying them until December, thereby proving that everything he says about tariffs is, he's at best grossly incompetent. Or he just plain old lies. Take your pick. And if anyone is cranky at me for mentioning politics, it's my show. If you don't like it, you can unsubscribe. I am sorry. I'm going to talk about reality as it is. This affects Apple and I am not going to pussyfoot around it. Exactly. I am the president of the United States. And if I don't want broccoli on Air Force One, I will have no broccoli. So there. How much trouble did that get poor Bush into, Bush Senior? (laughs) With the broccoli growers lobby. Who who knew that the broccoli (laughs) growers lobby could be so powerful? (laughs) 
Uh, the only other thing that sort of caught my eye uh, was an interesting opinion piece from Ming-Chi Kuo, who who basically lays out the argument that Apple are unlikely to pass on the cost of tariffs to consumers, at least in the short to medium term. I guess if this drags on for years, that, that, that whole algebra will change. But for now, at least, Ming-Chi Kuo is quite sure that Apple are not going to pass these costs on immediately. Um, and his argument makes sense to me, so, you know. Who am I, to... I think that that, to some extent, will probably depend on the rate of tariff, um, because there was a. I think it's starting at is it ten or fifteen percent? Ten percent. But something that Planet Money explained to me. I love that podcast, by the way. Planet Money, great podcast from NPR. Um, a tariff is on the wholesale price, not the retail price. That is true. Which makes a huge difference when your margins are forty odd percent. So for Apple, it means that they can definitely get away with, even if they were to pass on the full economic cost, it would probably only come out at a 4% price hike, according to some numbers I've seen. I think actually from Ming-Chi Kuo. Yes. That, is, that is what I've uh, seen also. Of course, there, there's talk that uh, if it drags on, the tariffs might rise as high as 25%, at which case, you know. Yeah, all the numbers go all up. All yeah. bets are off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, because Apple can't swallow that kind of a cost indefinitely. Not not when there are margins, you know. Apple are a big margin company. That's their thing, right? They don't do volume. They do margins. Well, if you destroy their margins, that's not viable. Um, Foxconn are apparently going to pivot some of their production to India, which makes sense since they have factories there. Um, and then... There's an interesting theory has emerged because something really weird happened with the iOS 13 betas. I don't know if you guys caught this, but... Oh, yes. There is now a beta version of iOS 13.1, but iOS 13.0 hasn't shipped. And the theory is that this is because they want to get the iPhones onto a ship. Because the other weird thing about tariffs, not only do you pay them on the uh, wholesale, not retail, you pay them at the point they depart from the company they're leaving, not at the point they arrive in the country they're going to. So if Apple put their iPhones on a slow boat from China now, or sorry, any day before today, then they would be not tariffed, even though they might not arrive in America for another couple of weeks. And so maybe the reason that iOS 13 has been frozen is because it's been burned into a bunch of iPhones that are bobbing on the Pacific at the moment. And then when they ship, they will release iOS 13.1 immediately on day one of the iPhones coming out. That is the theory. No proof. Yeah, yeah. We talked about this actually earlier, me and Nick, on the, on the Essential Apple. And uh, yeah, that. Uh, I mean, even the guy who, uh, who, who published that on Medium said, well, you know, this is, this is what I think. This is my reasoning, which all made sense to me. I, I must yeah. admit. And then he, and then he said, you know, if this happens, then uh, you know I'm right. And if different things happen, I'm completely way off. But uh, I like based, it actually. Based his, on the, his article ends with a test for how to tell if he's right or wrong. I wish more articles were like that. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was good. But you know, I agree with his logic. And um, yeah, I mean, Apple have never ever put out. A beta. I mean, I've been using the public betas since there were public betas, and mm. how it normally goes is it go. You know, you get to the end. I know beta nine or twelve or whatever the hell it is. Then you get gold master. Then the public release, and then 
usually within a day or two, you'll get a notification, you know, point one beta is available. Yeah, but not just with Apple. I have just never seen software go from, you know, something point something beta and then just jumping straight to the next beta before there ever is a public release. I've never seen that before. No. So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I, have say, going I, on. I still don't. Sorry, Nick. <clears throat> I still don't understand it. <laughs> I just don't. I don't under, what's, the, what's the beta release got to do with when the phone's shipping? Right. So if I, the phone I, has been put on a boat, it had to have some software on it. That couldn't be beta. Yes. So they would have had to stop development of the 3.0 betas because they would have put 3.0 onto those phones. But now that those phones are hypothetically bobbing around the Pacific, it's still a few weeks till the iPhone launches. So Apple still want to keep improving the software. So they had to yeah. fork it. So they had to basically start on the 3.1 branch. And they're now doing all the work on the 3.1 branch because the 3.0 is on those phones that are already bobbing around in the ocean. And then the day that those phones get unpackaged by human beings, they can release the 3.1 that they're now still in beta on. Oh, so right. So it's, about them, not, thir- it's about them not being in beta when they're shipped. Right. You yeah. can't ship beta. So you're right. So the, the phones have to have a real OS burned onto them, right? So when they arrive in people's hands, they're running a real OS, which would be iOS 13.0. Right. But they don't want to okay. stop work on making it better because... You know, best case scenario, the event is, you know, the 10th of September. The phone won't be out for another wee while after that. So they still have at least two, probably three weeks of development time. So why waste it? Hence, you go to beta 13.1. Oh, okay. Because normally they airship the phones. So they keep, they don't actually decide on the final version of the OS until like a day or, you know, it's like a handful of days, like maybe five days before the phones are in human beings' hands. But mm-hmm. if they need to get them into the States before the 1st of September because they're afraid of tariffs, well, then that changes the algebra completely. Uh, right. Okay. Got you. I mean, it does make sense as a theory, but again, no proof, right? It's just a very interesting theory to account for a very weird fact. Okay. So the uh, final follow-up story then is one that has come to a happy ending since last we spoke about it. So... Last time we spoke, we knew that Apple was getting into hot water for not clearly describing their processing as involving human beings. So Apple's privacy page was very clear that uh, a percentage of Siri uh, recordings are analysed. And the recordings are not associated with your Apple ID. They're associated with a random identifier and they're kept for six months. And then after six months, they're kept for another, I think it's another year, but with, with even the random identifier removed. So then they're just completely disconnected Uh, and they said that they were processed and all of those things are true but i think most people interpreted processed as meaning by a computer but actually some of that processing and it was only a percentage of like a a percent of a percent 0.02 percent i think were analyzed by human beings i guess to double check the analysis done by the computers because otherwise it's computers all the way down and that probably won't work, right? How do you teach an AI to teach an AI? you got to have some human input at some stage. But it wasn't clear. And then there was a story in The Guardian making it clear and then the whole world lost their mind. And that's sort of where we left things. Actually, where we left things last time was that Apple had just, within like 24 hours of us recording, had just suspended. Uh, We had just known that Google were doing it too. And then I think live on air, Simon, you gave us the update that um, Google had suspended as well. Yeah, I think that was true, yeah. So what we now also know since then is that Facebook were at it too. 
and that um, Microsoft were also doing it, but Microsoft took a very different approach, and Microsoft went, nope, we need this, we're continuing. And I kind of admire their honesty on that, you know? Uh, I I read a story uh, earlier in the month as well, which I found far more shocking than all this uh, AI grading, which is Microsoft admitted that they actually listen in to Skype calls. Yes, for their translation service. Because they they have an AI translation service. And that, it seems to involve humans in some way. Um, And I I found that far more shocking because, to be honest, if you, you know, um, I think, as I said previously, you know, anybody who thinks that none of these uh, AI requests are checked at some point by human beings... Uh, it really isn't thinking about it because if you have an AI that's good enough to uh, check the um, check <laughs> check, check the, request, yeah, check the AI, why can't they just do the work? Don't just stick that stick that AI in in your assistant and be done with it. So exactly. um, But I think you know, using a service like Skype, you pretty much would have a much higher expectation of privacy. You would because it's supposed to be end-to-end encrypted, yada, yada, yada. But, of course, since Microsoft bought Skype, the architecture of Skype has changed a lot because now it's client-server. Indeed. Yeah, so that's sort of where we were. Then the next development that happened, uh, we got a little bit more detail about what exactly Apple were doing and where. They were doing it in a little island called Ireland, down in Cork, actually. There were contractors doing it. And they've all been fired now, which is slightly annoying. Um. But they were basically listening to a thousand recordings per shift. So these were not long recordings. These were short little snippets that they were listening to and grading. Um, and now those people have been fired. We know that. Um, so what has happened since then? Well, we now know that Apple have issued an apology. They've issued a detailed uh, description of exactly everything they do, which is really nice and human readable in, in the true Apple way. And grading is coming back, uh, but it will be opt-in for the human review. Um, now, your data will still be analysed by robots, even if you don't opt into the human review. If you don't want computers analysing stuff you say to your computer, then don't turn on Siri. It, and that, that seems eminently reasonable. Uh, it just can't work otherwise. But it will be opt-in, um, and there will be no more third parties involved. So no more contractors in Cork, Ireland. It will be Apple employees doing the listening for the people who have opted in. So I can't find a reason to criticise where Apple have ended up on this. Um, And my criticism of how we got here is is just mild because I basically think Analyze was doing too much work in what they had told the public and they should have been clearer, but I don't think they were malicious. So I've never been particularly angry about this one. What do you, what do what do you guys think? No, I'm 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 totally with you. I mean, I think they've they've done the right thing. They've said they're sorry that they weren't clear enough, and you know that they hold themselves to a higher standard. They've told everybody what they're going to do. They're turning on an opt in. Um, yeah. The only um, the only thing which some people are pointing fingers are at is that um, if you wish to completely opt out of having Apple know anything, uh, you not only have to turn off Siri, but voice dictation. That's because dictation is basically Siri, right? It's the same AI. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, And they're saying that they will keep transcripts, I believe. 
Um, yes. So that that's basically so the so for six months it's associated with a random ID, and that ID is associated with your device. So if you have a Mac and an iPhone, you don't have one ID; you have two IDs, which is actually really important because it means that you can't you can't connect the multiple U's together. You it's just this device and the reason for the identifier is so that the the answer can go back to the person who asked the question that's you know that from an IT point of view that's kind of vital you need to have some sort of identifier or i can't route the answer back to you so it's a random id for each device you have and it's a never associated with your apple id and then after 6 months the random id is thrown away as well and then the recordings are kept as just standalone transcripts with no context and then used i guess as a training set for the ai so there you go. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm fine with that. You know, I really am fine with that. Um, I'm fine with the human grading, to be honest, because I actually want Siri to get better. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I just think, as I say, most people who didn't, you'd have to have not really thought about it. I think to have been surprised by that. Well, I, I mean, I okay. So if you know, if you if you know about computers and you know about AI, I, I entirely agree with you. But there are a lot of people for whom computers are magic. That is true. That is true. So I I, I think I do still think Apple should have been clearer in what exactly it is they they meant by analyzed. You know, I think that would have saved so much trouble if we'd just known that analyzed meant sometimes people. Uh, I think that would have saved us all a lot of bother. Yes, I must admit, when I first heard this story and, and, you know, basically people are listening to me to improve Siri, my reaction was, yes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah what what next <laughs> of course they are <laughs> and I'm, I'm i'm pretty sure as well you know there was all this kerfuffle about act you know accidental ac- uh activations but i'm pretty sure that most of the ones that are getting analyzed by human reviewers are of course things where siri has been flagged as being complete you know giving a completely non-relevant answer or has been triggered and then there is no apparent you know, interaction. Well, yeah, because if I, when I trigger Siri accidentally, the, she has extremely little chance of giving me a, the, the answer I want because I don't want anything. She's just, you know, she's <laughs> yeah. often transcribing a podcast quite well, actually. Um, but they don't always ask her questions as, you know, as they're telling me about tariffs or whatever. Um, so it, yeah. <laughs> I said to Nick earlier, to be uh, and, you know, I have no luck whatsoever in getting uh, the hey thingy to work. You know, I can shout at my phone, oi, you, and it doesn't work. And it just, so all they're going to get on accidental transcriptions from me is usually, come on, you stupid thing, will you answer me? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I want an untrigger word. I want a word that tells her to go back to sleep and disregard what I said. Yeah. And as as I joked with with Alison on uh, security bits, uh, bleep off Siri doesn't work. No, it does Goodness not. Knows I have tried. <laughs> Usually, it gives you a reply like, "There's no need for that sort of language." I know she gets snotty. It's like, "Well, you called me," and it's like, "No, I didn't," and that's the problem. <laughs> that one makes me particularly oh. cranky. Anyway. As probably comes as a surprise to exactly no one, Apple are being sued over the Siri recording stuff and the Irish Data Protection Commissioners have started an investigation to check if there is a GDPR issue. I don't and think everybody that, else. 
I'm sure it is. <laughs> is everybody else getting sued as well? Probably, probably. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there are some other some other things. So there's an opinion piece that sort of caught my eye um, from Tidbits, basically saying, "Well, why can't users teach Siri about its mistakes? So if there were Siri shortcuts for, oi, you got that totally wrong, please send it off for review. That would be a really useful shortcut to have available. And like I say, I want an untrigger word. I want a go to sleep word." Um, so they're you know so that's sort of combining what I want and the tidbits article. But you know why not? Why not give us an ability to provide instant feedback? Surely we as I'm the surprised, users. Uh, I'm surprised Siri doesn't really because um, the A lady does. Does she? She quite often says yes uh, if she's not absolutely sure what you said, but she gives you an answer, and then she says, "Was that? Did that answer your question?" Oh, that's very. And good. you can either say yes or no. And if you say no, then yeah. you try again. No, she doesn't. Unfortunately, that would be even better. But um, but that must be no, flagged. Somewhere, uh, but right presumably now. that get, that gets flagged. Presumably for someone to look at. Yeah, that, that yeah. I mean, that yeah. seems so simple, right? So yeah, Apple, turn on your photocopiers. Let's, let's get on that. Um, and then <laughs> two related stories. Um, so in the latest test of digital assistants. Um, Siri came second, answering eighty-three percent of questions correctly, beating Alexa but trailing. Google Assistant, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And apparently Apple are testing smarter Siri web answers for Spotlight queries. So this is not rolled out universally, but 9to5Mac have some screenshots of improved web results for people using Siri to search in Spotlight on their Macs. Actually, not just on their Ooh. Macs, I mean Spotlight in general. So that is interesting. But again, those improvements come about because there's, a, there's an input to Siri as well as an output from Siri. And that's why when Apple gave me the choice to opt in, I will be going, yep. I I, yep. I agree. Take part. Yeah, me too. And me. There we go. Okay, so that wraps up the follow-up. So now we can get stuck in uh, to this month's news. Uh, just a few notable numbers caught my eye before we get stuck into the more hearty news. The smart speaker market continues to grow as a whole, but the market share within that growing pie isn't rearranging itself, which effectively means that Amazon remain massively dominant and the HomePod remains and also ran at 5%. Uh, but maybe it'll be a little bit better because the HomePod's going on sale in Japan in August. So that's something. So I don't know if this is a problem for the moment because all these smart speakers are still such a nascent market and Apple have one toe in the water and sort of like the Apple TV that started off really slow and now that's you know, developed into a much more interesting product so I I'm just wonder whether I just wonder whether Siri was designed in a different way I mean the fact is the first experience we had of Siri was on the phone yeah. and often it would give us results on the phone, something visual, whereas the Amazon device was from the beginning was meant to be a voice, a voice, voice machine. And I I think that they're slightly different things. And and the reason Amazon has become so popular is because that's what people want. They want to be able to interact with their device and have their device talk back to them. And when they ask a question, they actually want the answer, not Here's a web page that you might want to go and have a look at. Well, the other thing I think people want is 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 for the thing to have some contextual memory. 
and that is yes. slowly coming to these smart assistants, but that's a real weak point in in all of them. Because you can you can do yeah. things like when is the when is the next presidential election? And it'll tell you that you know the next election is on the bladdy blah of blah. And then you could say something like, "And where's my polling place?" And it'll go, "I don't know what you're talking about." It's like, well, the, yeah, the you know the worst human assistant would figure that one out. You know, someone who would fail every interview because they're off their face on drugs would work that one out. But our smart assistants can't. I have to admit the the one that really tends to annoy me is where if I trigger Siri and say something and either it doesn't understand it or it can't do it or whatever, you can't then follow on with like, you know, it's like yeah. unable to send unable to send that text. So you go, okay, let's say I say, send a text to, you know, my wife. Hmm. If it says sorry, texting is currently unavailable, you can't then follow on with OK Caller because it doesn't... <laughs> yeah, the context is gone. It goes dead. It go, well, it goes dead. I usually have to trigger Siri again and then say, OK, you know, call my wife. It's just... There's no... Or send no, a message some other way. Yeah, I mean, there should be the ability to have a, a more... Uh, yeah, a more complex interaction. It, it, there's no follow-on. If if you issue a command and it can't do it, it doesn't then. It doesn't even then sort of say, "What shall I do?" <laughs> yeah, it's transactional, right? It's like you say something, I say something, and now we are finished. It's like no, you no, know, no, 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 no. <laughs> because not- it, it could, it, you know, it. Uh, I mean, the other classic for me is if the, if you dictate a text, it will read it back to you and yeah. say, "Shall I send it?" Now, if it's totally garbled what you said to it you say no you'd expect it then to go ping what shall i do instead and you could say try try again but no it just turns off which is bloody annoying yes it is and i mean that's why i say these things are so nascent i'm not sure it's panic stations yet then Apple are at 5% of the market share. But at some stage, it does kind of become panic stations because if we get to the stage where 50% of homes have a smart speaker and Apple only have 5% of those 50%, well, that strikes me as a problem. Uh, uh, The A-Lady also gives you the opportunity to... It does listen on a little bit now. You can can actually switch it on in the device. Um, So it will continue to listen after it's um, given you... Um, an answer right? so that you can give it another request afterwards without saying its name again. Again, um, yeah. Which isn't, which isn't what we're talking about, but it's uh, a no, step it's in something. the right direction. It's a step yeah. in the right direction. I've, I've, I've found that because I've got an Echo Dot now. Um, I always said I wouldn't get one, but my wife bought one anyway. So sometimes when I'm in the kitchen, I say to it, no, A-Lady play classic rock station or something. And then... If it gets it wrong, sometimes it will say, "Oh, here's a station for you, '60s rock." You know, it's like, no, not quite what I meant. Rock. You know, yeah, no, classic rock, please. And then it will go, "Here's a station for you, classic rock." So it, it doesn't go dead after yeah. the first reaction. Yeah. And it obviously still retains some context because otherwise, your second request is nonsense, right? If you have a goldfish memory, your second request would be nonsense. So it has yeah. more than a goldfish memory. Yes, I think it's. Uh, I think there is a little bit. <laughs> it's just, it, as you say, very nascent in its uh, 
implementation. Yeah, and of course, Apple's argument would be that they're making an expensive speaker that happens to do voice, and they're not mainly doing a voice speaker, which is certainly how the HomePod was pitched. But sometime, surely, in the next few years, (laughs) Apple have to release an equivalent of the dot if they want to become a player in the the voice assistant market. I I think so very much, because... um, as lovely as the HomePod might be and as clever as it might be, it, you know, it's well in the luxury bracket for me. It's Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, know, it's an it's, expensive speaker and apparently very good acoustically that happens to do Siri. It's not a device designed yeah. for people who are like, I want an, an assistant, therefore I should get a pod. It's I want a nice speaker. Oh, look, it does assistant. But, um, yeah, well, when think- the, um, go on, carry on. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, re- realistically, if they want to, you know, not forfeit this market altogether, they're going to have to bring out. I mean, no, it will probably never be down to, you know, dot or even um, echo prices, but they're going to have to bring out, a, you know, a HomePod Lite or a HomePod Mini or, a, you know, yeah. something that's a, a more bearable price point and sacrifice some of the acoustic brilliance and, provide more of the smart speaker um because i think that's that's what people want it is and while the rat turned the thing into i think actually it probably already is a home a home kit hub i think it already does that actually but it's it's sort of what you want is that it, that device would just be able to be your gateway to your home kit devices when you're out of your house and stuff and i'm 90 sure it does that already actually so you know that's already on the right road yeah when they when they launched the um home pod I took advantage of Sonos's offer at the time, which was two um, Sonos ones with Amazon hmm. um, uh, for the same price. For the price, wasn't yeah. it? And that was a serious dis- – I think it was nearly 50% off the price of two Sonos ones, wasn't it? Uh, it might not have been quite that much, but it was certainly a discount. It was a very big um, discount, I know, because yeah. I, I think so. I, I, think I that, thought that was too good, too good a. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Offer. I, I, I'd already got an, uh, uh, an echo anyway, so uh, it seemed a logical thing to do. Well, I think it is, and that is, I guess, the danger for Apple is if if too many people get too comfortable in in Amazon's ecosystem going to be very hard to break through but then again the fact that they have such a grip on the, the the hearts and minds of particularly american cell phone users maybe i mean i don't think like i say i don't think it's panic stations yet but if we're having the same conversation about a five percent market share two three years from now then either then we just accept that apple are not playing in this market or we panic yeah mm. Um, another story then that broke, because now we, we can't rely on getting the official numbers anymore because Apple don't do them. So the best we can do is analyst numbers for iPhone sales. And do bear in mind that when we used to get real numbers from Apple, the analyst numbers didn't ever completely perfectly match up. So these are guesses, folks, but it's best we can do. Anyway, in terms of raw market share, as in number of phones sold... The iPhone's market share has dipped in Europe and mainly the growth in volume has gone to mid-range devices. So Samsung are suffering as well on their flagship phones. It's the cheap and cheerful Android phones that are filling in the bulk of the volume. However, in terms of profit share, Apple are still king of the hill by a long shot. And I do not believe that this story is at all unrelated to the other story that made uh, that was doing the rounds this month. 
iPhone users are upgrading more slowly than ever, says report, or says the blindingly obvious. And as, as I think I've said on this show, that's normal in a maturing product, and that's why Apple are changing their focus to more expensive phones with the expectation that they will last longer. I mean, they did it. One of their biggest features in the last OS was how great it made older devices run. Hmm. Yep. Yep. It, it was very much a case, wasn't it, of iOS 12 is, you know, X percent faster than iOS 11. So even those of you on older phones will, you know, will feel an improvement, not a slowdown. And they did because. Oh, yes. You know, I know a lot of people, well, there's people in this very house running older iPhones and they were delighted with iOS 12 because it really genuinely did speed up their phones. Yeah, I think with the incremental upgrades that we now get um, annually as well, Mm. um, people don't feel that the... the, change is it's worth buying a new phone for therefore they hold on to their existing phone longer and then eventually they'll think oh okay i've I've got that that was added that year and that that was added the following year maybe now it's worth upgrading or they'll drop and smash it and go is this worth paying for a repair or do i just get a new phone <laughs> yeah yeah very much so and and it, it, it's just another, um, you know, Nick and I discussed this earlier. It's just a function of a maturing market. You, you know, if you've yep. got touch ID, how alluring is face ID? It's nice, but you've got, you've already got a biometric, you know, identifier. So is face ID going to lure you to rush out and replace your year old phone? Probably not. You can keep going with it for another year or so, and then you might jump And in normal to a people, phone. right? The techie geeks used to be every year like clockwork, but even the techie geeks are only every two years, and normal people are every three or four years or even five years. Mm. And that's fine. Yeah. That's absolutely fine. And that's why Apple are focusing on services and stuff. So to me, this number isn't a reason to panic. This number is the reason that Apple's business model has adjusted the way it has, because Apple knew this was coming. Apple planned for this to come. And, you know, this is just reality playing out as it's supposed to. This is not shocking. This is not surprising. And this is no reason to panic. It would be my take on it. No, hopefully. Mm. And, you know, uh, saying the mid-range devices, there's also, of course, the the fact that over time, what you get from a mid, mid-range device tends to get closer and closer to what you get from a flagship device. Yeah, I, d- I don't same... know about that. They feel very plastic. So, but the thing is, those devices, well, the because they're cheap, some... you, you replace them more often because they won't last. But there's a huge there's a huge range from, you know, budget to what they kind of call, call sub-flagships, you know. Um, <laughs> you know what That's I mean? Mast flagships or whatever, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. Well, yeah, frigates rather than destroyers or battleships or something, I don't know. But it, it's no surprise, is it, that, that a large percent of the market will choose a perfectly good smartphone at a less than flagship price. That's well, the thing is, if you're getting economics a bundle... 101, isn't it? Right, but if you're getting them bundled with your phone package and you actually don't care about tech, you just want something that works, you're going to go to your local Vodafone shop or whatever. You're going to say, give me the cheapest phone you have. Or sorry, give me the cheapest monthly package you have. And they're going to say, here you go. It comes with this blah, blah, blah phone. You're going, yeah, whatever. Does it make calls? You know, so of course. And the thing is, when the two-year contract is up, those phones are just going to be replaced. So those phones are going to churn more quickly and they're cheaper 
So of course they're going to win in volume. But the profit margin on those phones is very, very slender. It's not a good way to make money selling phones. No, it's not. It's a good way to sell phones, but that's not the point of business. So (laughs) Apple is definitely doing better with their model. Uh, And then finally, notable numbers, just sort of tell numbers about products, but I guess that's because the quarter is coming to an end. Um, Apple Watch continues to dominate wearables with 5.7 million units shipped in Q2 2019. And a similar take on the same story, Apple Watch continues to dominate wearables in North America. Basically, there isn't a, Apple have almost half of the smartwatch market all to themselves. That is a really successful product, if you ask me. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So I'm down. Dear Apple, do a nice job on the Apple Watch 5. I have my money saved. I am on my second Apple Watch. It's now three years old. I say I have my money saved. I'd like to give it to you. Give me something nice on the 10th of September, Plix. And then I'll become another statistic. <laughs> anyway, let's jump on. Some A few quick Apple HR changes. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have managed to hire away Dr. Andrew Trisser from Apple's health team. However, in retaliation, well, not in retaliation, but in an interesting mirror image, Microsoft, uh, oh, sorry, that's not a mirror image, that's more bad news. Uh, Microsoft hired former Siri boss Bill Stacer, uh, but then Apple hired 32 more test drivers for their anonymous car fleet in California. So let's jump into the main stories. Um, these, th- This month's stories are sort of meta stories, which is what I love about doing a monthly show is we can group things together. So the first collection of stories is about Apple and security. And it's basically bad news, bad news, good news. So the first bad news is not catastrophic. It was short-lived. It didn't actually cause any actual harm to any actual human beings. But it was hella embarrassing for Apple. So the latest security updates from... The the second to latest, as we record this, security updates from Apple contained a whole bunch of bug fixes for newly discovered bugs, and they were properly patched. But they suffered something called in the industry a regression bug. It's where you accidentally reintroduce an old bug you had patched before. And they can happen in all sorts of subtle ways. But the end result was that the very latest versions of iOS, and indeed macOS, had a vulnerability in them that was previously known about. And it took no time at all for the jailbreak community to start exploiting that vulnerability. And for the first time in years, there was a jailbreak against the most recent version of iOS. Now, that lasted a few days until Apple released an emergency patch to their patch. So they repatched what they had unpatched in the last patch with a new patch. Try saying that quickly. Uh, so, so we're all back to where we were, apart from the fact that Apple had egg on their face for a couple of days. So it's it's embarrassing. It shouldn't happen, but there was no harm done, really. On the other hand, Google's Project Zero. Now, again, there's there, there is a silver lining to this story, so it's not all bad news. But anyway, Google's Project Zero. We now know, I think it was released at at one of the big security conferences because it's DEF CON Black Hat season at the moment. Um, So back in February, we now learned Google's Project Zero responsibly, quietly and secretly reached out to Apple to let them know that they had discovered that there were websites that were succeeding in attacking iPhones and hacking them 
in basically a drive-by attack where if you visit the site, your phone gets hacked. And Apple had that fixed within six days, which is pretty good. And all that happened in February. What's interesting is that because of the architecture of the iPhone, these attacks needed chains of vulnerabilities, like five vulnerabilities long per attack. So in total, there were 11 different vulnerabilities needed for to get these attacks to work reliably. So basically, you need to find a bug in this and then a bug in that and a bug in the other. And you need to hope that you manage to find all of these bugs before any of them get patched. And then you have a way through all the different layers of security. So that is difficult. That is very difficult to do, which is why, on the whole, iOS is not, a, is not successfully attacked very often. And normally when iOS gets attacked, it's by nation-state actors. But nation-state actors normally behave as if their exploits are as precious as hen's teeth or whatever. Because you, if you give the game away, if you if someone discovers that you have these vulnerabilities, then they'll get patched and then you'll have nothing anymore. So they tend to be used really, really targetedly and really, really sparingly. But this attack was attacking thousands of devices a week for months on end, which is very unusual behavior. And while the vulnerabilities were in these complex exploit chains and clearly were very expensive to develop and probably involved a lot of resources, the attacks also made really stupid mistakes like hard-coding IP addresses and not using HTTPS encryption. So it seems as if someone with extremely deep pockets but not too much skill bought these exploits and then used them poorly. So the best I can think of is a country who have a lot of resources but are not smart enough to use them properly. So a mid-sized country is the best theory I can come up with. But it's it's very it, it, odd. it was a very, very strange thing because... Um, BGR had a, a report on this, as well as, of course, did loads of other sites. Um, but they mentioned that the sites involved had thousands of hits per week, and it's like that's an odd number too, isn't it? Thousands of hits per week. I mean, most mainline sites probably have millions of hits a day. Well, see, what so, I read into that is that it's some sort of phishing-based attack. Also, it they said that um, Google declined to uh, comment exactly on who the targets were, but they did say they appeared to be an ethnically based group, which again would That's point to some right? kind of that that would kind of point to some kind of state actor. It to me the the, the signs are. Some sort of intelligence agency from a mid-sized country that have enough resources to pay for things, but not enough skills to use them properly. Exactly. And, and in some way, a phishing-type attack where, you know, a, apparently an ethnic group are being, you know, invited to go to some website where they are infected with this spying malware. Yeah, because if it's a normal website that people actually go to, you're not going to get thousands of hits a week. The only way you get that kind of a number 
is if only people who are tricked into going there go there. So I, I think th- that is my reading of it. But again, we have very little facts to go on because Google are not being particularly forthwith. What we can say, so if you want to see the silver lining here, what this proves is how difficult it is to hack iPhones because you need these complex exploit chains to get in. So that means the bar to entry is always high. And that that's a ref- that's a really positive reflection on Apple because... All software is written by human beings. All human beings make mistakes. Therefore, all software has bugs. What matters is how you architect it so that those bugs do the least amount of damage possible. And the fact that you need a chain of five of them to get through the defenses means it's well architected. And the fact that Apple patched this within six days means Apple are clearly taking security very seriously. So... On the whole, this is kind of a positive story, but I really, really wish we knew more so we could understand what this means. Yeah, it's it's a very odd story because what they're saying is it's been going on for a couple of years. Um, I, I will say, I, I, and I mentioned on my show, you know, I think it, it's props to Google here because, no, they're not taking a pop at Apple here. They're zero-day project uh you know is effectively a bunch of ethical hackers whose job is to find anything they can and disclose it to whomsoever it affects be that you know google or microsoft or apple or or whoever yeah and they have i was like project zero has a long history now of doing great work so like you say this is not this is nothing personal between google and apple this is Google doing a public service for the internet and doing it very well. And like I have nothing but praise for, for well, no, not nothing. I mean, I can criticize the odd thing Project Zero do, but on the whole, for being an organization run by human beings, I think they're doing great work. Yep, very much so, you know. So the third story then to make up this potpourri of security stories is the good news story that we get to end on so it was defcon and black hat season and apple in the last couple of years have gone along to these security conferences which is a real change in posture from what they used to do in the steve jobs era which was basically keep secret about everything at all times um and so this year apple again went along to these conferences but they didn't just come along and say nothing they came along with some announcements and they're basically massively improving their security program So I think the coolest thing they're doing is they're providing researchers with special iPhones that have been configured much more closely to a test phone within Apple than to an end user phone. So they're not as locked down. So the security researchers can get right into them, can see extra debug information so they can really poke at the innards and they can even SSH to them and get a root shell on them. So they really can see into the innards without having to jailbreak the phone or anything like that. So it means they can get straight to the research instead of trying to break the security before they can investigate the security. So as a tool to help researchers help Apple keep their phone secure, these special security phones are a superb tool. And so the fact that Apple are going to make these available to security researchers is superb. They're also massively expanding their bug bounty program. So it, 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 they had a bug bounty program. Was a sort of, I almost looked at it as like a beta program because they were, it was very narrow in scope, invitation only and only for iOS. Well, now it covers all of their operating systems and is open to anyone. So basically, they now have 
a bug bounty program that anyone can use to report any bug in any Apple OS, and they've also increased their payouts dramatically. So, uh, you know, one of the headlines I more said, you know, Apple's new $1 million bug bounty program. If you find a serious enough bug, you it is worth a million dollars. That is So that is Apple getting really serious about getting help from the community in dealing with their bugs. So when you put that together with the fact that they were able to deal with this in six days when Google told them, and the fact that it was so difficult for the attackers to break into the iPhone at all because of all the layers of security, to me, actually, on the whole, although it sounds bad, I think Apple are actually doing a really good job on security. Yep. And, um, yeah, you know... Go on, Nick. Sorry. Uh, uh, no, I was just going to say, I said earlier that you'd much prefer to be with a company that is constantly trying to improve its position security-wise than with a company that sort of pays lip service to it. So, Yep. Yeah, Yeah. good on Apple. Yeah, put your money where your mouth is. A million dollars worth of it, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay, so I'm going to move us on to our second main story, which is, again, a collection of two smaller stories that I think are very much related. So I've called that Apple's complex relationship with indie repairs, because that is the kindest word I can come up with to describe this relationship. Fraught might be another relationship, but the thing is, it's, it's again, it's developing, it's maturing in a positive way. So the first of these stories to break was that iOS has started to show a warning when it detects that an iPhone's battery has not been installed by an authorised repairer in the authorised way. And that has two side effects from the point of view of the phone's user. It puts a badge on their system preferences to say, Auga, Auga, this battery's fishy. And it disables the uh, the advanced battery feature, the letting you see into the health of the battery. And... What it doesn't do is in any way stop you from using your phone. Now, the internet lost its ever-loving mind over this, and a whole bunch of less-than-reputable news sites described a badge as Apple disables third-party batteries. No, if they were disabled, you could never see the badge because your phone wouldn't turn on. That's what disabled means. (laughs) So there was a lot of... Storm and a teacupness about this, but what it really highlighted is this complex relationship. And my feeling, particularly with batteries, is they're dangerous. I don't think most of us realize how dangerous batteries are. And after Samsung's experiences a few years ago, you'd think we would. But a battery contains a massive amount of chemical potential energy. And if something goes wrong with that battery, that energy is released over a short period of time, which at best means a lot of acrid smoke and at worst means an explosion and usually means something halfway between the two called a really dangerous fire that will burn the big Jesus out of you. And when that happens, Apple, the story will never be person who installed third party battery gets killed by their iPhone. The story will always be iPhone kills person. Always. Like the, 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 when people get electrocuted by counterfeit cables, it says iPhone kills person. Not really, really shoddy cable that's a life 
you know, it's a death trap kills people. No, Apple kills mm. people. And so with the batteries, it will be the same. And like, if Apple are going to put their stamp on anywhere, it should win the battery. And also, if I'm buying a second-hand device, God damn it, I want to see that warning. And I don't want it to be disableable. Because if I'm buying a second-hand device, I want to know that that battery is not certified. So I never saw I find, a giant big problem with this. I find it quite uh, quite amusing, actually. People have really no concept of how batteries work. It's sort of magic. And, yes. Um, they also have no concept of scale either. Um, one of the questions as an electric car driver I often get asked is, um, so how far can you go in the car? And I'll say, oh, about 110 miles. And they say, and ca- can you carry a spare battery? <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, and, and uh, you know, the comment is normally somewhere around, you do know that the batteries in the car weigh a ton. <laughs> <laughs> so carrying a spare isn't really very sort of likely. <laughs> yeah, would I have a trailer to then eat up half of my battery carrying my spare battery? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, precisely. Uh, but I think I think that's part of the problem is a lot of people don't understand batteries. And you're right. I mean, batteries are batteries are dangerous things. <laughs> They really are. Um, you don't want to. You don't want, particularly lithium ion. You don't want to go messing with those. Yeah, and I mean no. lithium ion is very troublesome as a technology because while it is light and when it's working properly, it provides a good amount of power in a physically small amount of space, which means it's energy dense. It it goes wrong darn easy, and when it goes wrong, yeah, it doesn't it, like oxygen. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Exactly, it basically it burns. Yeah, well, you only have to ask Carl Madden from the Mac and Forth show what happens because him and uh, a friend of his were changing a battery. Uh, I'm not sure if it was a MacBook or an iPhone. It doesn't really matter. And uh, something went wrong and it went up. And Carl said, like, I have never been so scared in my whole life. But it's like the most frightening thing that has ever happened to me when the battery went up. I've seen a video of a lithium-ion fire. Like it's not just fire; it's it's really vigorous. Yeah, it's a yeah, acetylene yeah. torch comes to mind. Yeah, yeah, it makes that noise actually. Yeah, like like an acetylene torch. Actually. Yeah, yeah. So, not something you want to uh, no, get I'm, wrong. My phone spends an awful lot of time in extremely close physical proximity to my body. Yes. Either in a breast pocket, back pocket, or side pocket. And none of those places I want chemically burnt. Thank you very much. Yeah, so but buying shoddy batteries is not a good idea. It's not. So I'm kind of... I, don't, I, did, I did not see a scandal in the battery story at the start of the month. No. However, well, I mean, they didn't even do anything other than basically say, we won't report the health of your battery and we will tell you that this is not an officially certified battery. End of story. They didn't do anything else. Exactly. Exactly. They say you're you're free to go and do that if you wish, but this is what this will be the consequence. Yeah. And the other point to make, of course, is that if you get anything that is under warranty repaired out of warranty, you have just voided the warranty, right? If mm. you want a warranty, you have to get a certified repair because 
the person who's providing the warranty is responsible for that repair unless you break the warranty. So you cannot expect Apple to provide a warranty on something installed by someone that is not past the proper training, etc. You just cannot. That is impossible. Nothing works like that. No warranty ever allows you to randomly repair it and then expect the warranty to be respected. That is That does not happen for a pencil, let alone for something as complex as a smartphone. So, of course, going indie will void your warranty. But, having said all that, a lot of iPhones live longer than their warranty. A lot of iPhones live longer than their warranty. So out-of-warranty repair is a thing. And Apple used to make that quite difficult. Well, not they didn't make it actively difficult, but it wasn't as easy as it could be because the your only choices, if you wanted the genuine Apple parts installed using the genuine Apple tools, which do things like cryptographically pair the parts together for your safety and security... Uh, particularly the Touch ID chip or the Face ID chip need to be cryptographically paired with the motherboard and stuff. Otherwise, bad things can happen. Like, your security is at risk, basically. Uh, But if you wanted your phone repaired in such a way that it would be as secure as when Apple gave it to you, you had to go through an authorised repair shop. And that was the only way to get genuine Apple parts as well. And that works, but that's not cheap. particularly once you had a warranty where you were fully responsible for the cost. And that made people cranky. And it's one of the reasons that people are so, you know, adamant about their right to repair. And I entirely understand that. Well, Apple, much to my surprise, got the message. There is now a third category. So Apple can repair your stuff. And Apple authorized repair shop can repair your stuff. And there are now independent repair providers this is a new program apple have launched for out of warranty repairs with genuine apple parts installed with genuine apple tools following the actual apple manuals identical to the ones provided to the authorized repair providers so basically everything that the authorized repair providers can do but provided to indie repair shops at the same price they're provided to the authorised repair shops in terms of the genuine parts and in terms of the tools. And the manuals are provided free of charge. The only slight wrinkle is that at the at launch, it's US only, but we are expecting a quick worldwide rollout. So I am trying to find a problem with this, and I cannot see a problem with this. This just seems like good news all the way down. I, am I missing something? No. No, uh, we we mentioned this again on on uh, earlier, and, um, and I think there's another, there's possibly another angle as well, which is with the right to repair movement um, ramping up, particularly in the US. Mm. It doesn't hurt Apple to give a little bit and possibly avoid um, anti-competition um, investigation, but. Um, for whatever reason they've done it, it's good because it, it's a great, um, you know, it's a great halfway house between um, Apple, you know, going to a authorised service repair centre and, yeah. you know, Honest Joe's dodgy phone shack on the market where Lord knows what doing to your phone. Um, yeah. And what this means, right, is that you can go to an indie repair shop and if they are a good indie repair shop, you won't get that battery warning we talked about in the first half of this segment. Precisely. 
So it will be all official and approved. And uh, as uh, Nick said to me earlier on, um, this should make uh, Bart very, very happy because there is no <laughs> Apple store in Ireland. Yeah, we we do have actual authorized repair centers, so we, yes. we had one of the we had one of the two options, and now at this, when it rolls out to the rest of the world, uh, it, this is going to be a a great thing because if Apple are serious about their environmental stuff and they're serious about people using their phones longer, they either had to extend their warranties t- to like you know an optional five year warranty like you can get from Dell for some computers and things, or they had to do this. Actually, I'd yeah. like them to do both. If I'm completely honest, <laughs> that would be nice. I I would like to pay for longer longer Apple Care than two years on an iPhone. That goes double actually for the iPad. I I really really think the iPad should have three year Apple Care like in like a Mac does. Frankly, the Mac and the iPad should have five year Apple Care if I pay for it. If I pay for it, like I don't want it for free, but let me pay for it because my iMac I expect them to last me five years and they usually do. Hmm. So anyway, I, I think this is a very positive development in Apple's complex relationship with the Rainier repairs. And like you say, I, I don't I don't think that the only reason Apple did this was because of the right to repair. But I'm also not naive enough to think that the right to repair had no impact, no influence on this decision. No, no, I'm sure the right to repair did not force their hand, but I'm sure it might have uh, added a little weight to that side of the scales. Yeah, if you're sitting in a board meeting and you're looking at the pros and cons, there's no way that didn't come up. Exactly. But I think it's a win-win for everybody. I don't see that it's a loss for Apple in any way because they're going to be selling, you know, the actual Apple parts and tools and all the rest of it, in fact, to probably a much wider audience. Right, and if your business model is focusing ever more heavily on services then what you want is for these phones to live healthily for as long as possible. And it's well, a free also, training course as well, isn't it? Yes, you can do that the training the... for free. What you had to pay for is the tools, which is not yes. unreasonable. But not at a yeah. premium. You get them the same price as the authorised people get them. Yeah. So, um, and I'm just also wondering how many iPhones that get broken end up being discarded because getting it repaired is just too much of a fag. Yeah, now, you see, that makes me slightly cranky because Apple's give-back program is actually stupendously easy to use. And even if your phone is completely broken, the absolute worst case is they will ethically destroy it for free. It will never cost you anything. And in most cases, it will make you money because they will give you money for it. But well, I'm, I'm, they what I'm thinking of, uh, th- there's that, but I'm also thinking very much of, you know, people like my daughter and, and uh, you know, her partner. They've got iPhones, but they're second-hand iPhones, you know, they're mm-hmm. sixes or sevens. Um, they're, at the moment, they're unlikely to, you know, go to Apple to buy ah, a yes. phone. See, so now if my daughter drops and smashes the screen on her iPhone, she's got to be able to get it repaired at a reasonable price, reasonably conveniently, or she is likely to say, well, for the cost, I might as well go to the second-hand shop and get another phone. Yeah. And uh, I'm just thinking, it, you know, lower down the chain, 
there are a lot of people with hand-me-down iPhones who would probably never buy an iPhone new. And if they have access to, oh, you know, the home button stopped working, yeah. they can just go down to the high street and go into the shop and say how much to fix that. Yeah. And the bloke will say this much. And it, by the way, it's all guaranteed, authentic Apple, you know, none of this. I can fix the home button, but the touch ID won't work anymore or any of that sort of malarkey. It's just like you can just go, go yeah. down to the high street, go in the shop, how much money, it's that much. Is that cheaper than buying a replacement phone? Yes, it is. Fine, do it. Yep. And less and landfill. Just, and and people... that just keeps phones going for, you know, maybe another year or so. Yeah, so less landfill, and they can sell you Apple Music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, you know, it is It is definitely an Apple's favourite. If you pivot your company to be more about the... The services and the basically the the ongoing income, as opposed to it being about selling more hardware, you have a much more sustainable business model, and all of a sudden your incentives are to keep phones going, not to try trick people into upgrades. Now Apple have I don't yeah. believe Apple have ever done nasty things to force people to upgrade. I think they've actually done the right thing, but now they're extra incentivized to do the right thing because of their new business model, and I like it when a company's financial incentives line up with mine. You know, when a company is aligned with my incentives, when they make money doing the right thing by me, they're more likely to do the right thing by me. Yep. Okay, the third and final of our main stories is... It's it's an interesting one. It's, it's arguably short, but I think it's significant. So, Apple are not... Apple have never... Apple have a long history of not running themselves in the traditional way, like like that outburst from Tim Cook. You know, it says, you know, when it comes to accessibility in the environment, I don't care about the ROI. That's unusual in corporate America, and it shows that Tim Cook has always thought differently about what a corporation is for. And he's expressed that in various speeches he's given in commencement addresses and interviews. And he sort of expressed the fact that he sees a corporation's responsibility as being longer term, not maximizing quarterly profits. And he sees corporations as having a bigger responsibility to the community and to, you know, to, to the world as a whole. And now Apple are not alone in that. 180 other CEOs have signed on to that a very similar kind of vision through a forum put together by the Business Roundtable. So they have created a document called Statement on the Purpose of a Corporation, which basically highlights a bigger view of what a company is for than maximizing quarterly profits. And to me, this just really sounds to be in line with what Tim Cook has been doing for years and years and years. So I've obviously now it's not particularly long, so the link is in the show notes, and anyone can have a read. But it basically comes down to you know we commit to delivering value to our customers. We will further the tradition of American companies leading the way in meeting or exceeding customer expectations. We commit to investing in our employees, compensating them fairly. Blah 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 blah. We commit to dealing fairly and ethically with our suppliers. Again, seems good to me. Uh, we commit to supporting the communities in which we work. We respect the people in our communities and protect the environment by embracing sustainable practices. We commit to generating long-term value for shareholders 
who provide the capital that allows companies to invest, grow and innovate. We are committed to transparency and effective engagement with shareholders. So they're basically saying that stakeholders include people like the community and that shareholder value is about the long term, not about the short term. That's very Apple-like. And so to see 180 other companies sign up sort of caught my eye. So a lot of people are saying, ah, it's just some mumbo jumbo. But I think this is how Apple have been running for ages. And I just think it's I nice would, to see I, that. I would think so, yeah, very much. I, I, I mean, yeah, Tim Cook, as you say, has, has said things like that before. And, he, you know, where people have challenged him about something. And he's like, no, we do that because it's the right thing to do. And it's not that's not about the bottom line. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and it's quite right. Yeah, and the other thing Apple have repeatedly said is that they are interested in long-term growth, not short-term growth. And again, that is that is notable in this statement that it is about long-term value for shareholders. Now, yep. something I would need to own up to. Um, so a couple of months back now, when I say a couple of months back, it might be a year ago, um, I said something on one of the shows about Apple having a fiduciary duty to its shareholders. And that is true that Apple have a fiduciary duty to the shareholders. But I hadn't understood the nuance of what that means. And I think an awful, awful lot of people on planet Earth share my misunderstanding. Um, And I just want to say... Listener, I did get your email that time. You did actually get home to me and I have been thinking more deeply about what it means and I now have a better understanding. So the fiduciary duty means that Apple has a legal responsibility not to, quote unquote, screw over their shareholders and to live up to what they promise. Now, that's been misinterpreted by a lot of the press to mean must maximize quarterly profits. But actually, that's not true. If a company's charter says that the purpose of the company is to break even every year and to spend all profits on charity, then the fiduciary duty of that company is to maximize what they do for charity and not to make a profit or to make a loss because they've committed to doing neither of those two things. So your fiduciary duty is to live up to your end of the bargain. It's to, if you promise shareholders X, you you need to actually achieve to do X and you can't screw over your shareholders. So if Apple commit to being a long-term growth company, then it is their fiduciary duty to look after the long-term interests of the country. It is not their fiduciary duty to maximize quarterly profits because that's not what they promised. And that nuance, I didn't know that, until recently and that nuance is where an awful awful lot of coverage of apple shareholder meetings goes completely off the rails because people say things like i mean it's disgraceful that apple do accessibility because it's against their fiduciary duties i mean they should sue apple and some dumb shareholders <clears throat> Carl like and his like pull that kind of a stunt but fiduciary duty is much more subtle than i realized Yes, the um, the company I work for um, a couple of years back decided that they'd reduce um, dividends mm. um, because it was the right thing to do, and they explained why it was the right thing to do for the company. And I think most shareholders shrugged and said, "Okay, get on with it." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because your well, job is yeah. to keep the company going effectively, and uh, yeah. if you need to do that, then do it. If you it might upset some people. If you give out all your money in dividends and then go under because you don't have enough capital to sustain yourself, that's a very poor interpretation yes. of your duty. It is. Absolutely. 
But yeah. when you listen to coverage on the news about decisions companies make, it really is. Everyone is always going about maximizing, you know, it's all about maximizing the shareholder return at the end of each quarter. And that's not actually what the law says. The law doesn't detail you have a fiduciary duty as a company, but it's not a duty to maximize quarterly profits. The very concept of recording quarterly is relatively modern, frankly. Companies used to run annual accounts. The mm. annual general meeting was where the annual accounts were done. Yeah. Exactly. And the short-termism can be very damaging because what's in your short-term interest is often in direct conflict with your long-term interest. Very dangerous. So anyway, I was really happy to read that Tim Cook managed to convince 180 other people of his view of planet Earth. And i it's one of the things I like about Apple is their their view their big picture view, their big tent view of corporate responsibility. So I, I hope I hope this is more than just words and that more companies start to behave like this. Taking a slightly cynical view, it is easy to be magnanimous from the top. <laughs> sure, sure. And I guess the other thing is, right, when people criticise Apple for being weird, that criticism was much more compelling when Apple were struggling. That criticism yes. is not compelling anymore. It's just, it is silly to say that, oh, I mean, it's all good and well to say that we should all be green, but I mean, you can't run a successful company being green. Really? Do you think Apple are not <laughs> successful? Yeah. Mm. It's a wonderful trump card when people pull these stupid things. I mean, why should they spend all this money on accessibility? Well, it seems to work out pretty well for Apple. You know, why, should we, why should we invest in renewables? Seems to work out pretty well for Apple. Anyway. Anyone have any any thoughts on on that before we call it a call it a day? No, well, I think we've covered it all. I think uh, I think yeah. like you, it's just a, a good a good all round thing and cannot you know cannot be criticised in any way, shape, or form. I don't think. Well, on that note, let us move on to some quick stories to round out the show. So these are some other things that happened in the month of August that were noteworthy, but not worthy of getting a whole big segment. So I'm going to quickly run through these. Um, A number of airlines have banned some or all 15-inch MacBooks from being checked on or being carry-on in some cases. So this all started in America. Um, Apple did a voluntary recall of 15-inch MacBook batteries and i think we talked about that either last month or the month before and the federal aviation authority the faa in america have a policy that says if a battery has been recalled it is not allowed to go on a flight and that's not a bad policy and that's not an apple specific policy that's just the policy of recalled batteries no go on airplane and so the faa issued a circular basically saying there has been a recall of apple batteries therefore it is not it is illegal to bring a 15-inch MacBook, which is eligible for the recall and has not had its battery replaced, onto an airplane in the United States of America. Eminently reasonable. Internet lost its ever-loving mind. Virgin Australia took a slightly more nuanced approach. They basically went, it's far too hard to figure out whether or not a battery has been replaced, so all MacBooks are banned from check-on luggage, but it's perfectly fine to carry any of them in your carry-on. I guess they hope to open the window and throw it out while the battery goes on fire? <laughs> there we go. the logic is, but I guess if no, it's no, in the when, cab... When the air rushes out, the, the flames will go out, you see. I mean, you'd be fine. Yeah. Um, actually, <laughs> I, but it is possible to actually have fireproof boxes on board planes these days to deal with that sort of a thing. I have a bucket of ice. 
<laughs> yeah, but if it's in the hold, you won't even know what's happening, right? So no matter what well, team you've got. Well, are holding the hull and the plane. <laughs> yeah, well, you won't, you won't know for long. It's like, why are we falling? <laughs> <laughs> yes, anyway, and then that was followed by Qantas, um, who have also basically done the same thing. So in America, no unreplaced battery any which way. On the Australian Airlines, no MacBook of any sort checked, but you can carry any of them on, whether or not your battery's been replaced. So it's interesting alternative ways of dealing with it. But anyway, that's all there is to that story. It's really not the end of the world, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Uh, Apple have also released some information on how they responsibly source their gold because there is a lot of gold in Apple. Well, not a lot by volume, but a lot of Apple products contain an amount of gold because it's a really good electrical conductor. And when you need to have good electrical conductivity for small, teeny tiny electrical contacts within teeny tiny products like, say, Apple Watches and iPhones, you need good gold. And you need to dig it out of the ground in such a way that you don't destroy the environment or human beings. So Apple have a whole big article on their partnership with Resolve to responsibly source gold. Apple are also working with Eli Lilly to study whether they can use iPhone data, so the stuff from the sensors, to, sorry, iPhone and Apple Watch data, to detect very early signs of dementia, which is a fascinating idea that your your phone basically... Oh, that's cool. Yeah, because you always have these devices with you. So if there is a subtle change, if they can pick it up and get you treatment, because at the moment, dementia treatment involves stalling the degeneration. So the quicker you can hit the pause button, goodness me, the better, the more of you has been saved. So I'm really optimistic for this kind of thing because we have a family history with such things and I'm getting older and I would like, you know, I would like to to have a better outcome than some of what I have unfortunately witnessed firsthand. So, mm. please. Happier note. That's not exactly a happy story. Um, Apple new Apple Music News. So, Apple have launched their Digital Masters initiative, which is basically high res remastered music. That's going to sound as good as possible. So that's that's now available in Apple Music. There's also a new Shazam Discovery playlist to highlight emerging artists. So basically. All of those songs that keep getting Shazam, but people go, ooh, that's cool, what's that, are now available as a playlist. And if it's, you know, if it's good enough to make you want to Shazam it, it must be interesting. So that's a cool idea. Um, Alexa is bringing Apple Music to more countries. And Porsche are integrating Apple Music into some of their cars, into, into the, the Tycon. Tycon, Tycon EV. Now, initially yeah, this... about that. Initially, this story passed me by because I thought, yeah, whatever, CarPlay. No, 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 not CarPlay. Apple Music directly integrated mm. into the EV sports car. So that, that was interesting. That's, that car's breaking lots of um, records. Records set by Porsche, actually, <laughs> which is quite interesting. Well, being an EV sports car means it's it's a different beast, right, to your traditional 911 yeah. It accelerates very fast. Uh, I saw a, um, a, a YouTube um, article about it where they accelerated up to the top speed. Uh, I can't remember how fast it gets there. It's not, not 60 in two point something seconds. It's very fast. That's staggering. Um, it is. And basically they just did it because, because – there used to be a problem with Teslas in that you sort of had to preheat the batteries mm-hmm. to get them to do their fastest speeds. And, mm-hmm. and they, what they did is he just drove this thing up and down an airfield, maxing it out every time. And he did it for about 
60 times than the airfield just to prove that it could be done. Wow. Yeah, because, of course, the battery is suddenly being asked to deliver a stonking amount of power out of nowhere. You know, batteries going, oh, this yes. is easy. Oh, my God, you want what? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it sounds cool anyway. Yeah, no, it's, it's kind of really take it, Captain. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, my 10-year-old, ten, no, my nearly 20-year-old Ford Fiesta, has, yeah, anyway. It's to be a while. Anyway, uh, Apple have opened an early access program for Apple employees only, sad face, uh, for their upcoming gaming subscription. So Apple Arcade is getting tested by Apple employees who are signing up to it. So that means that there's some hands-on stuff now available. There's a video linked in the show notes and some reviews and stuff. So we get to see what this looks like. And it looks interesting. And the leaked possible price point is $4.99 a month. I'll take that, please. Maybe we'll learn more at the upcoming Apple event. Apple are continuing to roll out contactless student IDs in more American universities using iPhone and Apple Watch. Um, Danske Bank is bringing Apple Pay to customers in Denmark, Finland, Norway, and Sweden. Um, Apple have added all scripts to the health records part of their health app. Apparently in America, that's a big deal, but it's an American thing. Um Apple directly credited Mozilla with helping them with this, but Apple have released an updated tracking prevention policy, which is linked in the show notes. And they basically said, Mozilla had this idea first. We think it's a great idea. We're on board too. Tracking is basically to be considered as malware and to be treated appropriately is what it boils down to. And I am all Mm -hmm. in favor of that. Apple also launched augmented reality art walking tours in six major cities around the world, specifically Hong Kong, London, New York, Paris, San Francisco, and Tokyo. Uh, Basically, you pop on some AOR stuff and you wander around places like Central Park and these weird artworks are suddenly superimposed on Central Park or wherever you are. It's a bizarre and cool idea. really this is why we need apple glasses folks because this will be way way cooler if i didn't have to wave my phone around like an idiot so i like the idea i mean i like the idea for instance um a little while ago i went to a stately home in the uk that is a ruin it burned down in the 50s i think um and they've got lots of photos in each room to show what it would have looked like but think what that would have been like with virtual reality so you could well, superimpose what it would have looked like. Oh, AR, rather, yes. So you yeah. could actually superimpose on the structure what it would have looked like. That would be really cool. Oh, I'd love that. Actually, what I'd really love is an opacity slider so that I can yes. sort of phase it through. Between one and the other, yeah. yeah. That would be really good, wouldn't it? Yeah. Actually, AOR in a museum and stuff would just be perfect because AOR with a little bit of intelligence behind it means that you could literally wander around and as you look at things, labels can appear and, you know, yes, so much potential. Also, I am terrible at remembering names. We just need a sensible pair of glasses, that's all, to actually do it with. (laughs) Yeah, non-creepy, no camera or microphone being my definition of non-creepy. Thanks very much. Or if it has to have those things by a company who do not make any financial profit whatsoever from invading my privacy, whose incentives are aligned not to. Um, The story that never seems to quite go all the way, apparently India are yet again closer to letting Apple set up Apple stores because they've passed a new set of rules for foreign investment. This has been rumbling on for years with India getting ever closer to Apple being allowed to set up an Apple store. 
And maybe this time is actually the actual time when Apple will actually get to set up a store. But you know something? I'm not going to make it a main story until there's a store open and people (laughs) are walking in and buying things. But anyway, that happened. And then finally, as we've hinted a million and one times, the Apple iPhone 11 event has been announced for September 10th, 2019, 10 a.m. Pacific time. It will be live streamed. Yay. Yes. So I, I now reminder to self book time off work. Uh, okay. So that brings us to the end of a very busy month's worth of Apple news. And given that there's a keynote next month, I can't imagine September news is going to be much shorter. <laughs> Guys, thank you ever so much for giving so freely of your Sunday evening to wander down Apple Lane with me. It was great fun and I really appreciate it. That's all right. Listeners, you will find show notes at lets-talk.ie with links to all of the stories that informed my thinking about this month's Apple News. There's quite a lot of them. Some of them are labelled with things like opinion and related and so forth, so I've done my best to make these intelligible. I hope they're a valuable resource to you. If they are, there is a big blue button hovering next in the sidebar called Support the Show. I want to thank everyone who has and continues to support the show. This show is listener-supported. There are no advertisers. There are no sponsors. And I don't have the financial resources to pay for this out of pocket. The reason this show exists is excruciatingly simple. You, the listeners... Pay it. Pay for it to be possible. If you didn't, it wouldn't. But you do, so it is. So thank you. Um, You can support the show in all sorts of ways. In terms of financial, the most efficient way of supporting the show financially is through Patreon. The idea is you make a small dollar pledge per episode. And at the end of the month, there will be exactly two episodes, one Apple, one photography. And at the end of the month, all of your pledges get collected into one payment to me. So all the PayPal fees are consolidated into one small fee instead of if you were to try to donate lots of small amounts through PayPal, the fees would all go to PayPal and almost nothing would come to me. That's why Patreon works. Um, And that, uh, basically, at the end of every month, there is an amount of money coming in from Patreon that I can rely on and there are bills coming in from hosting providers and various things like that that I can rely on and I take the money from one and I pour it into the other and they come darn close to balancing each other out and that is wonderful. There are also, from time to time, sporadic expenses. At the moment, I'm saving up for a piece of software Alison has told me I need, uh, which is about $100. Uh, So at the moment, what I'm hoping is a few people will push the PayPal button and make a one-off donation, and I can then save a few of those together and purchase that little piece of software. Previous things the PayPal donations have been used for are things like a uh, shiny new boom to hold my microphone so I can actually talk to you. Very useful, various bits of software and things like that. So that, that's sort of what the PayPal button is great for. Then there are affiliate links for DigitalOcean and Hover for domain registration and Linux virtual machines. The Hover, if you are the kind of nerdy person who needs a Linux VM, the Hover one is great because once you spend $50, you get free money from them and I get free money from them. And quite a few months now, the show has been effectively hosted for free because of people clicking on that DigitalOcean button that is extremely helpful when you do that. Now, only if you actually buy things. So this is only for the nerds among you. Um, You can then also support the show entirely free of any sort of monetary value by simply telling people about it. Tell your friends. The more people who listen, the more people there are who could conceivably contribute. Uh, I do not want anyone to contribute if you do not have the financial means to do so, right? 
I understand what it's like to to not be in that position. I wouldn't want anyone to in any way put themselves under any stress whatsoever. Uh, just tweet about it, tell your friends about it in the physical, real world. Maybe leave a review. These things all help the show immensely, and I greatly appreciate it whenever anyone does any of those things. Again, let's talk. Dot ie. Simon, you, as you may have hinted once or twice, have an Apple podcast <laughs> of your own. Would uh, you like? Yes. Uh, would you like yes. to tell the listeners where they can find said podcast? Uh, yes, of course. We are uh, the Essential Apple Podcast. Um, you can find our site at essentialapple.com. Uh, we also put our shows on uh, mymac.com. Um, and you can find us at uh, Spotify, uh, Radio Public, Player FM, um, you know, all good uh, podcatchers, etc. We're back from our uh, month off. Uh, Nick and I recorded a show uh, this afternoon, which will probably come out after this show is uh, done. Because uh, wibbly wobbly, tidy wimey, huh? Well, my my <laughs> my editing is uh, a bit more you know long winded than yours, but you usually get yours up sharpish. I faff about with mine. You, um, you say editing. You say editing. Editing is an interesting word. What I do is I take the file, I run it through the levelator to get the levels right, and then I chop the little bit of waffle off at the front and the little bit of waffle off at the back. I shove a jingle on either end and I call it a day. Yeah, well, there you go. Mine's slightly more involved than that. But anyway, uh, we're in all those places and other places. Uh, we're on YouTube and uh, SoundCloud and all sorts of places. And basically, anywhere that will take our guff, we shove it. It's uh, as simple as that. So, uh, yeah. And uh, if you want to uh, follow my sometimes ranting, sometimes political and sometimes funny uh, personal rants, you'll find them on Twitter as at Serenak, and that's S-E-R-E-N-A-K. Excellent. Thank you very much, Simon. Uh, Nick, you don't have an Apple podcast of your own, but nonetheless, where could people find you on the internet if they wanted to follow you? Uh, They can find me on Twitter very occasionally. Um, that you'd find me under Spligosh, S-P-L-I-G-O-S-H. Excellent. And I, but actually, to be honest, you show up on Essential Apple really quite often, so maybe all of Simon's links work for you too. I suppose so, yes. <laughs> Goodness me, we're very incestuous. We're all, we're all in, the, in, in the, the MyMac Podcasting Network together. We're all on each other's shows. Um, I, I believe I'm booked in, in the, to be with you in September, I, I believe, Simon. So... Yeah, we're all very incestuous, but hey, we're a good community, so it's fine. Yeah, that's good. Um, I, I'll have to check that date with you again, um, Bart, but yeah, we'll have you on the show in September. I was going to say, I promised you an appearance. It's up, it's up to you too <laughs> to take me up on that, but uh, anyway. We'll, we'll, we'll sort it out, yeah, yes. definitely. Okay, folks, again, let's just talk to the E. I've been your host, Bart Bouchard. You can find me at bartb.ie. And until next month, happy computing. You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hello, everybody. This is Simon Parnell, the host of the Essential Apple Podcast, the show where we aim to take a wander around the week's news in Apple, news, reviews, technology, security, and anything else that catches our eye. Plus, from time to time, we like to have guests from the industry 
who we get to tell us about their products, their services, their history, their philosophies, what uh, drives them, and of course, just what makes them tick. That, plus a bunch of friends talking about the news in Apple. What more could you possibly want? Check us out on the My Mac Podcasting Network 